0: Good morning, and it is so good to see you virtually. At least I am assuming that you all can see me and hear me. It is so true that God's grace is enough to even get us through those times where we have audio glitches or, or what have you. Thank you for, for joining us this morning on our live stream worship service with Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, and that was Pastor Eric. And Alan is the one who is doing all of the the help for us. And we are so thankful for the team that the Lord has for us here at Rancho Baptist Church. So thank you. And I too, like Pastor Eric, just wanted to say a a quick word before we jump into the book of Acts. I, I wanted to say Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you do for for your family, for your husbands, for your immediate family, for those around you, you are the unsung heroes. As day after day after day, you continue to do the work, the work, the work of of making our homes run so beautifully. So thank you, thank you to my own mom, Susan Swanson, thank you for all the wonderful, wonderful years that you have given not only to me, not only to my, to my sister, but, but now to your grandkids, to, to my children. I still hold very cool memories of going to Old Town Mall when we lived in Torrance and I was just a little boy and, and you taking me out of school, going to the mall, going to Perry's Pizza and jumping in those, those little, I think they were bees, bumblebees that went up and down like the Dumbo ride at, at Disneyland. Thank you, mom. And I, and I pray that today is a special day for, for, for my mom, for my children's mom, for, for my lovely wife, Shannon, and, and for all of you moms out there. For you truly deserve it. Thank you for all the work that you do that so many times just goes unapplauded. I pray that, that today that you are looked after well, that you are served, that you're able to kick your feet up, and that your family serves you today. And that all those around you would rejoice because of you and your wonderful service to your family and for the Lord. Now we are going to get back into the book of Acts today. We are going to Acts chapter nineteen. And as I continue to pour into this text and and look at where we are going to go this morning, I, I got more and more excited because, Where this text takes us this morning is to a a topic that that I think is is very needful. It is the topic of the Holy Spirit. It is the topic of what I've entitled this morning's message, Almost Christianity. I mean, there are some out there who who, who are in this camp. They are in the Almost Christianity camp. And and as I considered the group that we're going to look at that's almost 12. We're not even told by Luke exactly how many men there are, but, but the way that he depicts it is almost 12. I, I remember back to my days in, in, in high school and junior high and how there were always a select group of, of kids, and, I, and, I, and I'll say mostly, mostly the guys because I didn't, didn't see too many girls doing this, but there were guys in, in the school who, well, they looked like they were surfers, right? I mean, they, they had the haircut. They had the clothes. They even talked in the surfer lingo. They even knew some of the names of the key spots where where surfers go, like Trestles or Rincon or or what have you. And and yet, the problem was is that they weren't surfers. They they had actually never stood up on a surfboard. Oh, yes, if you went to their homes and, and you went to their house and they opened up their door and they showed you their bedroom, they'd be like, oh, look, there's my board. But the reality is, is that they had never, ever truly stood up on a surfboard. Maybe they tried once or twice, but they had never truly become surfers. What, what we called those kinds of guys, they, they were posers. They, they, they were wannabes. They, they were kind of pseudo surfers. And it's one thing to be a pseudo-surfer because that's not really going to have any eternal significance, but it is an entirely different thing to to be a pseudo-Christian, to be all about something that we would see from Scripture as almost Christianity, but true, indeed, not genuine Christianity. And so what we are going to see this morning is something that is crucial, that is absolutely vital, that is non-negotiable to our Christian faith. You must have this in order to be a believer. In fact, you must have him in order to be a believer. There's so many things that we can disagree on. We can disagree on eschatology. We can disagree on, on when you think Christ is going to come back. We can disagree on how everything is going to pan out in the future. In the end times, we, we can disagree on, on signs and wonders and, 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 and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You could be someone that doesn't ascribe to cessationism, that those gifts, those miraculous sign gifts that they stopped, that they ceased when the apostles died out. And you might, you might find out in the future that you're wrong and I'm right, but, but that's beside the point. No, no, we, we can disagree on those things, and they do not change our eternal destiny. No, they do not. But this that we are going to look at this morning, this is non-negotiable. You get this wrong, and you, you get it all wrong. There, there is no such thing as almost Christianity. Either you are a genuine believer or you are not. And what we are going to see this morning are, are, are these almost... 12 men, these, these 12 guys that the Apostle Paul runs into, and they look the part. They, they seem to be going to the, the church in Ephesus. They they seem to be involved in what's going on there. They, they, they look the part. They, they talk the part. Maybe as we hung out with them, they'd even smell like a Christian. But the reality is, is that they are missing something essential, something crucial, something huge. and and, and that's not a something, that's a somebody, some person. Who they are missing is the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are going to see this morning as what they have is not Christianity. What they have, rather, is almost Christianity. And, and as we start out this morning, that is a very good question for you and I to ask ourselves. What what is my faith really like? Is it true, genuine Christianity, or is it something different? Something that that, that could be construed, much like we're going to see this morning, and almost Christianity. And I pray this morning that for those of you who who are listening, who are watching this morning, who know the Lord Jesus Christ as, as your Savior, who know the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that resides within us that believe. That this would be an encouragement to you. That this would be a challenge to you. And to those of you who are in the same position as these 12 that we'll see today, who did not know of the Holy Spirit. And and I would say if you do not know of the Holy Spirit, then you do not know of Jesus Christ. Because they're they're like a, a package of two. You can't have one without the other. And so perhaps this morning you just found our our website or found us on YouTube and you just stumbled upon us this morning. You're like, what's the Holy Spirit? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you are in the same spot as these folks that we will see in Acts 19. And and please stay with us. As perhaps this morning what you will receive is, is like an alarm clock. What you will see today is is some sort of wake-up call. Perhaps a stirring in your soul, a call to repentance, that as you hear the word of God preached and taught this morning, that God in his wonderful grace will save you this morning. And you will be welcomed into his kingdom, and, and you will then have the Holy Spirit that is Talked about here in Acts chapter 19. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 19. As this morning we are going to look at Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. Again, in a in a sermon that I've entitled Almost Christianity. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Let us pray for for the preaching of God's word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we desperately need your help. We desire to understand all of your truth, Lord. And we know that the teaching on the Holy Spirit is of utmost significance. It is also important to us as believers, Lord. So we ask this morning that you would use your word to illuminate our minds, Lord. That you would open up our minds to truly understand what your word is teaching that we might leave this morning having spent time eating your word up storing it not only in our minds but down deep into our souls that we would leave changed and that we would seek after you more earnestly that we would seek to have the holy spirit your holy spirit control us more and more And all that we do. Ultimately, so that you would receive the glory, Lord. So guide our time now by your spirit, through your word, because of Jesus Christ and all that we have in him. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. So as we see here and as we've seen throughout the book of Acts we see again an emphasis going on the Holy Spirit. And and this is not something new. We've seen this over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ could not build his church without the Holy Spirit. It was the whole reason why he told his disciples, the apostles, to wait in Jerusalem. It was the whole reason why he knew that he had to leave and ascend because he knew that this helper, his helper, the Holy Spirit would be sent and then would enable his disciples, his apostles, to plant his church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what we have seen throughout the book of Acts. And the way that we've seen the Holy Spirit work and the way that Christ has been building his church has has been in in, in kind of a segment of people. And first, who does Jesus go after to to construct and to build his church? He goes after the Jews. And he goes after them in Jerusalem. And the way that he brings them in is through Pentecost. And they are already saved and they wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. And then what do they do? They, They do the miraculous. They speak in tongues in a language that they did not know but all those around them knew. And as a result, many, many Jews were saved. But, of course, Christ isn't done. His intention, his plan, his command to his chosen people, to his apostles, is to what? Is to go out into all of the world. And so we see that happening. And in Acts chapter 8, what happens? The gospel, Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. And the Samaritans are saved. That is the next group that Christ wishes, that he wants to bring into his church. And so the Samaritans are saved, but but what we see is that they don't receive the Holy Spirit right away. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're baptized, but it isn't until until Peter and John show up and lay hands on them that the Holy Spirit is actually received and, and comes upon them all. And then we see in Acts chapter 10 that it's not just the Jews, it's not just the Samaritans, but, but the Lord Jesus Christ wants to include all of the Gentiles. And we see that through Cornelius and his family and his household. And there the gospel goes forth from the mouth of Peter. And as they believe what happens before they're, they're baptized, before Peter lays hands on them or anything, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then what we see today is another group, really the final group. And, and this group represents very similar to who we saw last week with the Paulists, those that would be considered Old Testament saints. They're not living in the reality of the New Testament. They're not living in the reality of placing their faith and their confidence, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Even though they've heard the message of John the Baptist, they haven't actually carried through with what John the Baptist's message was telling them to do, which was to place their faith in the one that would come after him. And so just as we saw last week, we we saw this man, Apollos, get get saved. And then the the Holy Spirit works in his heart, and where does he want to go? He wants to go to Corinth. And so here you can see from from this map that Apollos starts in Ephesus, And then he decides, okay, I'm going to go to Corinth. And the church in Corinth rallies around him. And the leaders in Corinth, they're so much behind what Apollos is doing that they write letters of recommendation. They say, hey, take this with you. And then he goes to Corinth. And there he has a very profitable ministry, encouraging, strengthening the church as well as evangelizing the Jews in Corinth. And then what we see in verse 1, chapter 19 is, is is this transition, that the spotlight goes off of Apollos and what he is doing in Corinth and comes back on to the Apostle Paul. And what we see is what we saw first at the close of of last week is Paul has started his third missionary journey. And as you can see from the map in this third missionary journey, he starts off in in his home church in Antioch. then he goes to Derby. then he goes to Lystra and Iconium, all the churches that he planted before on his first missionary journey. And he goes there and he's strengthening these churches in these particular towns, finally ending in Antioch, not the Antioch of ascending church, but another Antioch where he might have had malaria on his first missionary journey. And then as we see in this next map, we, we see how Paul then gets from that Antioch to Ephesus. And he goes via Colossae and Laodicea. And those are two very significant churches that perhaps Paul started planting here on the beginning of his third missionary journey. But we're not told that he spends any kind of time in either of those cities. Why? Because his sight is set on Ephesus. That is where he is heading. That is where he desires to go. That is... Honestly, going back to the second missionary journey, that is what Paul had that's where Paul has been planning on going for quite a long time. But the Holy Spirit forbid him from going there. So now he finally gets the opportunity to go to Ephesus. Yes, he he'd gone to Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, but he wasn't there for very long. And now he's going back and this is significant that he's going back to Ephesus because of all the cities, of all the towns where churches are planted. He spends the most time in Ephesus. We will see this in, in Acts 20 verse 31 as he, as he spends time with the Ephesian elders and he lets them know that for three years he was with them. But it's just not the time that he spends with Ephesus, with the, the church in Ephesus that makes this significant. It's not just the fact that he wanted to go there so bad, which he did. But it's even the way in which his time in Ephesus begins that is oh so telling. Because what he does, and at least in my estimation, is he just, he gets there and he's hardly there any time at all. And he he asks a very difficult question to ask someone. And what is his concern? His concern is that, that this group would not stay in this almost Christianity group. And indeed, what he gives them is he he gives them almost what I would call a Holy Spirit spirituality test. And this morning, that's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through these three questions that we can see in this text or that are seriously implied in this text. And hopefully this will be an encouragement to you that the first question is, have you received the Holy Spirit? The second question is, well, what do you do in order to receive the Holy Spirit? And the final question that we will see is, what is the evidence that you have received the Holy Spirit? Show me that you've received the Holy Spirit. And then, yes, I I will believe you. Well, we see all of that in this text. Look at verse 2. As first we see this question posed by the Apostle Paul, have you received the Holy Spirit. What is he asking them? He's asking them, are you truly saved? Notice at the end of verse one, we see that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. What did he do there? He found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And and they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, that as far as this first test question, they just failed, right? That, that is, that, I'm sure that is not the answer that Paul was hoping for. But this is the answer that he gets. The answer that he gets is, man, we, we don't even know what you are talking about. Like the Holy Spirit. But, but pull back for a moment with me and, and just think about the Apostle Paul. We're not told how long he's, he's been in Ephesus. He could have just arrived in Ephesus where we're not told about Aquila and Priscilla. I would think that that's where he went, that that's who he would be living with while he's in Ephesus because they're good buddies of his, they're ministry co-workers with him, they're fellow missionaries, but we're not told of that. It could be that he goes and he spends time with them. And as he spends time with them, he hears about Apollos. And so he has some sort of understanding. Oh, yes, there's, there's folks here in Ephesus that ascribe to the baptism of John the Baptist but do not know truly about Jesus Christ. So maybe he has that on his radar and as and as Paul goes around his little radar is, you know and he's and he's trying to figure out exactly whether or not this person is truly saved or, or not but but in any case can can you imagine asking somebody this question really before you even know them very well or before you've been there very long? When was the last time you asked someone this question, have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, I would think if you asked that question, you might want to duck after you ask that question. Perhaps after last week in my sermon about the the wetsuit zipper, you're thinking, well, that's a good question to ask Pastor Jason. Where's the Holy Spirit in your life, Pastor Jason? And I would say, you know what? On some cases, this would be a good question for, for us to ask one another. Because what's implied behind that question is the fact that the Apostle Paul must have seen something. He must have seen something that that gave him the impression that that they were missing something. That there there was some part of the puzzle that that, that was missing. And I don't know that that he was literally teaching. And as he was teaching, that they just weren't grasping anything that had to do with the Holy Spirit. That, That their looks just... Looked like they were asleep and they didn't understand, or, or perhaps as he looks at their lives, and it's not so much knowledge of the Holy Spirit that they lack, but perhaps it was the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he looked at their lives and he didn't have to be there long, he saw there was a lack of joy, that there was a lack of peace, there, there was a lack of patience, and, and perhaps that got him thinking, hmm, I wonder if these guys have ever, have even heard of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that a crazy thought that, that Paul had the discernment, had the wisdom to go ahead and throw out this question? And, and I would say this was quite early on. Man, what a great thing to pray for, that the Lord would give us wisdom and, and knowing exactly how we approach one another and that how we sharpen one another and how the Lord might want to use us in other people's lives to encourage them in the faith to challenge them in their faith. And so that's what we see with the Apostle Paul, that perhaps he didn't see any fruit bearing. Perhaps he could hear from the way that they were answering questions that then leads him to just come out and and ask this rather strong armed question. Hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Notice how he asked the question at the time of believing. You see, in the Greek, there, there's only one main verb in the sentence, and it is not believing. Believing is the participle, and, and, and what it is, it's, it's really a time-relative verb. What Paul is describing is, is he's letting them know, hey, I, I, at the time that you believe, something should have happened. At the time of, of your believing, when you believed, something should have happened. And that something that should have happened is to someone, the Holy Spirit, should have come upon you at that time. Was that the case? This is very similar to what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, where, where Paul writes it like this. He says, having also believed, it's the same idea, it's that time, when you believed, at the time of believing, you were sealed. In him, with what? With the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So, what is being emphasized here isn't so much the believing as it is the receiving. And and the idea is, well, the one has to happen with the other. At the time that you believe, you should have received the Holy Spirit. Now, I I must be honest that there are lots who go to this particular passage of Scripture. And they say, hey, this is what substantiates our belief that there is indeed a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Come on, Pastor Jason. These guys are already saved. They already have the Holy Spirit. They just don't know his name. And so later what we see is a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. And so, some would come to this passage and they would use that to to defend the fact that they are asking for the Lord to give them a second anointing of the Holy Spirit, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit, so that they can then speak in tongues or do all sorts of things. And and the problem with, with such a viewpoint, with such a position, is the fact that the book of Acts is all over the place on on how the Holy Spirit comes and what the Holy Spirit does when he does come and and when the Holy Spirit comes. As I stated earlier, when the Holy Spirit comes upon some, he he comes right at the moment of believing with Cornelius and and, and all of his family and, and those represented as the Gentiles. And so we can't come to the book of Acts and say, this is the the prescription, the prescribed notion of the way every church should function from this point on throughout the rest of the church age. Because what is happening here is this transitional time. The scriptures are are not yet in canon, they're not yet complete. And so the apostles are being the, the authority, so to speak. They have to prove that what they are saying is indeed gospel truth. And the way that that is validated is through the miracles, is through their authority and the placing of hands on some that that then are are able to be given the Holy Spirit to show that they are indeed now welcomed into Christ's church. But we cannot look at this and then then say categorically every time that someone is saved, there is an initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit where you're only filled up to say, Thirty or forty or fifty percent, and then you must ask for another filling. And some would say, "Oh, what about Ephesians 5:18, where where it says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation.' But what? But be filled with the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean, Pastor Jason? Doesn't that mean that 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 to a certain extent, it's it's almost like I'm I'm perhaps I'm like a gas tank in a car, and 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 when my my fuel level gets low, I go and I get I. I get it refueled. Can't I get some more of the Holy Spirit? No, you don't need any more of the Holy Spirit. That is not what Ephesians 5.18 is talking about. That word to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is talking about a control issue. Don't be under the control of wine. Why? Because when you are under the control of wine, it does things to you. You are not in control. The wine is. And as a result, you will do things that you would never do otherwise. Well, in the very same way, with the Holy Spirit, we are to be under his control so that we can do the things that God wants us to do. And we have the power to do that. This is seen very clearly in the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, but in particular verse 9. Because what we see here is either you get all of the Holy Spirit or you have none of the Holy Spirit. It isn't like you get 80% and then later 20% is added to you as some sort of second filling or or second blessing. That's not what's communicated in God's word. That's not what we see that, that you need to ask for more of the Holy Spirit so that you can somehow live a more holy life. No, if you're not living a holy life, the problem isn't that you don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. The problem is the Holy Spirit doesn't have enough of you. That you are not walking before him and leaning on him. And maybe we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 6, if I have time. But look at this. This is so cool. This is what... The Apostle Paul writes to show just how blessed we are to be grafted into Christ, to be given the Holy Spirit, and to be able to live according to the Holy Spirit in His life, living in us, empowering us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How did he do that? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that is how believers are supposed to live. According to the spirit, not according to the flesh. It's impossible for someone in the flesh to please God. Equally, it's impossible for someone to be a believer without the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Meaning that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, then you are not in Christ then you are in this camp of almost Christianity, which is where these disciples were at in Acts 19. We, we see this very clearly. T- turn real quickly with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a verse that we're very familiar with but is very appropriate to what we're talking about, whether or not we need to be filled with more of the Holy Spirit to actually give ourselves to the Lord and, and to live a holy life. We, we don't see any of that terminology presented in 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 any of Paul's writings or anything in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nineteen to twenty says this, or do you not know that your body is what a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. It doesn't say, for you've been bought with a the price, therefore ask for more of the Holy Spirit so that you can glorify God in your body. No, you've been given all of the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a promise of what is to come, that we will one day be together with the Lord. And notice Paul's response. Or I'm sorry. Notice their response to Paul. As he asks them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit?" If this doesn't make it clear that that these guys are are not saved, then, then I don't know what does. They respond, "Hey, we don't even know who this Holy Spirit is, or if there is even a Holy Spirit." They, like Apollos, are still missing something that's crucial. That's why they are still in this almost Christians group or almost Christianity group. But notice, unlike Apollos, they they don't even talk about Jesus. And that is what we are going to see. And I believe that Paul gets even a clearer confirmation that these are not saved folks, that they didn't know Jesus yet with the next question which takes the question of whether or not you've received the Holy Spirit even a step further as he then asks them the question, well, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? That's what he's getting at. When he asked them this question about baptism, what he's really getting at is, well, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Do you receive the Holy Spirit through baptism? The answer is no. Baptism does not allow you to somehow receive the Holy Spirit. Baptism is just done with water. There's no power in the water. It's who... It identifies you with that is the significance of baptism. So we see this in verses three and four. And he, Paul, said, So now he's responding to them that they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. He says, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in who, in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. So how do you receive the Holy Spirit? You receive only through repentance and faith, belief in Jesus Christ. For as much as these men knew and as quickly as they are to respond to Paul, there is something glaringly missing in their response, and that is the word Jesus. You don't see it anywhere. What do you see? You see John, John, John. That's who they're all about. But that is not who they should be all about. John is long gone. John's message was pointing forward to someone who is greater than him. And that person, Jesus Christ, has already come. And with Jesus Christ coming, he's already completely fulfilled everything promised about the coming Messiah. Everything that John pointed to, Jesus lived up to. And so as a result, this baptism of John was no longer needed. In fact, I'd say it's stronger than that. It wasn't that it just wasn't needed. It was was incomplete. It was insufficient. It was inadequate. It was no longer appropriate. Why? Because it wasn't going to save anyone. The only way that it was going to save someone, if, if they then understood who was coming and they then placed their faith and their confidence in Jesus Christ, that's why. When Paul says what he says, and Luke pens it, the the wording, the phraseology is very important. As as it says, as John the Baptist was telling people to believe in him who had come after him. What what he's saying there in the Greek is very strong. It's in in this weird kind of case that's that's known as, as the case of possibility or uncertainty. It means that that they were to believe, but you didn't know if they were going to believe or not. That there was a possibility that they could believe in the message and the one that was coming after John, but there was also a possibility, some uncertainness, that they may not believe. And the only way that you would know is when they were presented with Jesus Christ. And at that particular point, then came the decision time to know whether or not these were an almost Christianity group, which is a no Christianity group, or they were welcomed in to Christ's kingdom and into his church. And yet notice here how how Paul follows that the protocol, so to speak, of Priscilla and Aquila. Remember what we saw last week. They were so gracious in the way that they corrected Apollos. And here Paul is equally very, very gracious, very, very sensitive. And yet he does correct them. He doesn't leave them in the state. Why? Because he knew how significant it was that they did not understand, one, the Holy Spirit, and two, Jesus. That's why he ends his sentence in verse 4 with Jesus, and that's where it is in the Greek. That's placing all the emphasis on his name, not on the name of John. Don't get things mixed up, you 12 or almost 12. What is truly significant isn't John, but who came after him, Jesus Christ. And that is what we see. As he tells them that the baptism of John, it was was pointing forward to someone greater. And so the baptism of John is no longer needed. And so then we go from the first question of, Have you received the Holy Spirit too? How do you receive the Holy Spirit? And if truly you do receive the Holy Spirit through faith, through repentance, turning to Jesus Christ, trusting Him as your Savior, then the third question then follows. If that is the case, then the next question is what is the evidence that you have received the Holy Spirit? What is the proof? Is there any fruit? And that is what we see last. And we see that indeed there is fruit, There is proof. There is evidence that these almost 12 believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they do indeed receive the Holy Spirit. Look at the, the, fa- the last verses 5, 6, and 7. When they heard this, that means these 12, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me stop. Again, as Luke pens this and gives us a recap of what's going on, he forgets and doesn't write in so much. It's not that he forgot because this is the inspired word of God. But he only gives us snapshots. What is implied? What had to have happened before them getting baptized and after he told them the distinction between Jesus Christ and John the Baptist? Well, they must have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They must have trusted in him as their savior. Why? Because they're now choosing to be rebaptized. They are baptized again, and notice the significance of how they are baptized and whose name are they baptized. Not in the name of John, not by John, but they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are identifying with him and him alone. And they are, in essence, saying, yes, what John preached was about him, about Jesus Christ. And we are not trusting in some no-name person, some Messiah that we don't know who it is. No, we are trusting in the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. And that is why they are baptized. And then notice, why does all of the Spirit's work come and, and this and that? What is the evidence that you've received the Holy Spirit? Is it baptism? Does baptism prove that you are saved? Does baptism prove that you are a child of God, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ? No. These guys, they, they don't even receive the Holy Spirit till after baptism. Notice that when they receive the Holy Spirit, it is when, after they are baptized, Paul comes and lays his hands upon them. I don't believe we can make this anything more than it is. That the apostle Paul was an apostle and as such, he had some authority. And and the reason that God chose to not allow them to get get the Holy Spirit was until the apostle Paul laid his hands on them. wasn't because there's some great power that, that comes with the laying on of hands. It had to do with the authority of the church and that they were now being grafted into the church. You you don't need to have a pastor or somebody come and lay their hands on you for you to receive the Holy Spirit. It won't work. Just as you don't have to have miraculous sign gifts such as speaking in tongues to prove that the Holy Spirit is in you. For many of us have never had that happen. Many missionaries that I know of have never spoken in tongues. And yet I know they are saved. Why? Because it is evident. It is evident not in the miraculous gift, speaking in in tongues or the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. It, It is evident because of the other gifts that they possess that the Holy Spirit still gives out today, I believe. And what are some of those gifts? Those gifts are the gifts of faith, the gift of serving. The gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the gift of administration or teaching, or I'm sorry, the gift of leadership, the gift of giving, the gift of mercy, and and many other gifts seen in, in 1 Corinthians 12, that how do you know that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you? Well, you know, because of the gift that he has given you for the edification of the church. And perhaps you're still trying to find out what that gift is. Well, you need to get involved in the church. And as soon as we start gathering back together, you will have an opportunity. In fact, even through Zoom right now, you have an opportunity. To display some of the gifts that the Lord has given you, whether that's teaching or or giving or mercy. But it's not limited to that. That's not the only way that that we can know that, that the Holy Spirit is residing in us indwelling us we can know because of what it says in galatians 5 right where it says the fruit of the spirit these are things that, that are manifestations of the spirit working in and through us and what are those love is there love is there joy in your life is there peace is there patience kindness gentleness faithfulness and self-control those are good questions that we should be asking ourselves. and do i do I see these fruit manifestations in my life? these these things coming out? am i am I more joyful than i than I was five years ago? am I am I more patient than I was five years ago? and and, and of course, we're not talking about perfection. This is an ongoing work. But as we submit to the Holy Spirit, as we're controlled by him, we do start to see more and more fruit being evident. So this morning, as we as we wrap things up, how, how did you do on, on this, That what I would call the Holy Spirit test? Is it clear to you that you indeed received the Holy Spirit? And if so, how did you receive him? What, what do you think is the reason why you received the Holy Spirit? If it's anything else than faith, you need to come back and think through the passage of scripture that we saw in Corinthians and in Romans. And if you did receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, then that final question, what what is the evidence? What is being manifested in your life? Where's the fruit? Do do you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit living in your life? You know what? I think some might be thinking, man, Pastor Jason, why is it so important that we understand these truths about the Holy Spirit? Why is it so important that we understand that the Holy Spirit comes at the moment of salvation? Why is it so important for us to to know that we have received the Holy Spirit? Why is it so important that we should be able to see the manifestation, the bearing of fruit in our lives? And I would say, my my brothers and sisters in Jesus, the the reason is because the Holy Spirit is the only way that you as a believer, that I as a believer can have the power to live a God-honoring life. It is the only way that we can participate in the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has for you and has for me. It is the only way that I can stand up here Sunday after Sunday and after Sunday and expect God's word to to do something in my own heart and in others' hearts is to trust in the Holy Spirit. It is the only way that I think day after day after day that I can respond in loving godliness to my children, to my wife, to those around me is for me to know that the Holy Spirit resides in me. That the Holy Spirit is the answer to our sanctification, to us becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, to us becoming more and more holy. Now there's a a pretty well-known missionary who who is now a preacher who goes around preaching all the time. His name is Paul Washer. And, and he says this in regards to the Holy Spirit, and I thought it was very challenging. He says this, I used to tell young preachers, so, so he goes around and, and he's always challenging young preachers with how they are to live. said this, I used to tell young preachers, in order to preach, you've got to have the power of God on your life. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, you have to have the power of God on your life. Now I tell them, in order to tie your shoes, you've got to have the power of God on your life. What is this talking about? Humility that we must truly submit to the Lord and we must allow the Holy Spirit to be the controlling factor, the controlling force in our lives time and time again. Let me leave you all this morning with, with some points to ponder that you can take with you throughout this week. Number one, consider how Paul engages with these disciples of John graciously yet truthfully. What does this teach you about your own approach to speaking with those who you know are are perhaps theologically confused? Should you approach them? Why or why not? And if you do, how should you approach them? You know, you never know what the Lord wants to do through you. That there might be something that someone is missing, one piece of the puzzle that will totally help them in their walk with the Lord. And that that piece, you you know what that piece is and, and you can share that with them. But you must do it graciously and lovingly, not in pride, just coming up and and voicing your own opinion and some strong conviction you have, but bringing the word of God to bear upon their life and allowing the Holy Spirit to use that word. Number two, consider how the disciples of John didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Here's a telling question. How well do you know the Holy Spirit? Could you go to the verses that I went to this morning before we met. Do you see his fruit in your life? Do you experience the Holy Spirit? Do you know his prodding of conviction? Do you know his spurring you on towards evangelism? Do you know the peace that he gives in trying times? Do you see his gifts being manifested in your life? Why or why not? And number three, what is your Christianity? Is it an almost Christianity lived without the Holy Spirit? Or is it a real Christianity lived in the power and the knowledge of the Holy Spirit residing in you? Oh, I pray the latter. I pray that that would be the case for all of us. In fact, let me close our time before we end with with one song and Pastor Tom comes. Let me close this, this time praying just that that our faith would indeed be genuine and real and true, and that we would not find ourselves in an almost Christianity club this morning. Heavenly Father, we just stop and we thank you that we know that salvation has nothing to do with us. That the coming of the Holy Spirit isn't something that we ask for. It is something that you have promised that you give freely for all those that believe in you. And Lord, I pray that we would come to a greater understanding of the Holy Spirit. That we would be led by your Holy Spirit. That we would be controlled by your Holy Spirit to a greater extent tomorrow than we are today. That you would work in our lives to bring that into reality so humble us teach us more and allow your spirit to be more and more manifested in our lives that the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness self control that those things would be evident and that the gifts of the holy spirit that they would be used among our body that your body the church here at rancho baptist church would grow Stronger and stronger for your glory and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, we pray.